The book of Ephesians, most Bible commentators will tell you the main theme, if uh, not at least one of the most important themes of it, is the teaching of the church. You might say, well, aren't all the books of the Bible kind of about the church? Well, yeah, indirectly, but not like directly like this. This book, more than any other book, letter in the New Testament, uh, is directly about what God's ideal design for the church is. And when you get to chapter 2, where our lesson is taken from today, uh, what God does through the Apostle Paul is he's telling about, first of all, in the verse 10 verses, he's telling about the individual, how God in his wisdom, in his glory, in his majesty has taken uh, dead people and made them alive. He's taken broken people and he's made them whole. But in verses 11 through 22, we start to understand why he does that. It's not just so that they can stand on their own, but it's so that they can be built together into one another as his body, which is called the church. Okay, here's verses 19 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Here ends our lesson. I'm going to break the teaching today into three points that I think Paul is trying to draw out for us. They go like this. Number one, we're going to look at today who we once were, what we were by nature. Secondly, what we'll look at is what we now are. And thirdly, we're going to look at becoming what we are. You might think that third point would be what we will be. No, we already have everything that we need. The problem is there's a gap between what we are and feeling like what we are. We're already God's children. So why do we feel this sensation of a gap between those two things? So the third point is about feeling, sensing, experiencing what we already are. What we are, what we, what we were, what we now are, and becoming what we are, okay? So first of all, what we were. You notice here at the beginning, the Apostle Paul opens the lesson by saying, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. What's the insinuation? What you were is foreigners and strangers. Paul's point is that every single human being, when you enter into this world, as it relates to God and as it relates to his universe, you are a foreigner. Now, what's a foreigner? Some of you have actually lived in foreign countries before, so you know what the experience is like. But for most of us who haven't lived elsewhere, if you've been in a situation where you don't completely know the language of the people, or you don't really feel like uh, you understand the cultural habits, or maybe you don't have any close personal friends, people that you uh, have an intimate kind of relationship with, or just in general, you feel kind of hopeless and helpless navigating through all of that kind of stuff, you know what the experience of a foreigner is like. Paul says, as it relates to God, as it relates to his universe, you are by nature a foreigner. Uh, you constant, this is part of the reason why we're always trying to get into things in life. We're trying to get into uh, clubs and get into schools and get into whatever else. Not because we just want the school, which is good, but because we constantly feel like we're on the outside of life. And we constantly are trying to get in. We feel like perpetual outsiders. 
there's a German philosopher by the name of uh, Martin Heidegger who in the 20th century, he talked all about this. He used, he, so far as I know, he invented his own term. It was called Unheimlichkeit. That's not, by the way, in Wisconsin, I've learned a new term called Gemütlichkeit. Not the same thing. Gemütlichkeit, so far as I can tell, is stuffing yourself with sausage and cheese and beer to a, some kind of rhythmic festival. That's apparently Gemütlichkeit. Unheimlichkeit is almost like the opposite. Unheimlichkeit is like a, a loneliness. It's feeling perpetually out of place. It's a, it's a, it's a cosmic outsiderness. C.S. Lewis actually talks a little bit about this in Mere Christianity. He says something like, uh, if you feel like in this world you have desires that this world cannot fully satisfy, what that probably means is you were built for a different world. And the Bible would fully support that concept because actually we find out at the beginning of Scripture that Adam and Eve were created for the Garden of Eden. But after they fall into sin, what happens? They're banished east of Eden. They're on the outside of where they were created to be. And this life is this perpetual journey of feeling like we're on the outside, trying to get back in where we're meant to be. Bible fully supports that idea. Interestingly enough, society seems to be moving more and more in the direction of feeling outsideredness. In fact, I saved a piece of research from back in spring from the General Social Survey. It's over 20,000 respondents. And they said the conclusion to the research was that America has never felt more isolated and more lonely than it does today. In fact, there are three times as many people today as in 1985 who would categorize themselves as desperately lonely. And in fact, do you know what the most common uh, response with how many confidants do you have in your life is? The most common response to that question is zero. I have nobody in my life that I can really be close to, that I can really be transparent and vulnerable around. Furthermore, you know what's also interesting? Is the research skews younger. So the people who were most inclined to say that they felt isolated, lonely, and no confidants was Generation Z, the cohort 18 to 22-year-olds, followed only by the millennials. And when it goes down like that in generations, it's telling you our country is becoming more and more and more that way. We're going to continue to feel increasingly isolated and disconnected from one another. Now, what's the response? You know what the solution to that should be? It should be the church. Because the church is a place that welcomes everybody as brothers and sisters, right? We're all sinners who are saved by grace. There's no categories, there's no classes, there's no nothing like that. And yet, the research continues to say that just as many Americans, including Christians, continue to feel isolated. What's the problem? Part of the problem is that in the past 50 years or so, the conception of American church has been recast as a place where you have your most closely connected relationships to a place where we go and we sort of, like we do everywhere else in America, we consume spiritual commodities. So what do I go to church for? I go to church for, well, I wanna get a good message and I wanna have some inspiring music along the way and when I get that, I get my quick fix and then I'm done with church for a while. And I might not ever form meaningful, transparent, vulnerable relationships along the way. Uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. The church is designed, even the way, by the way, you're contributing to the problem if you've ever used, raise your hand. Now that I've already tipped my hand and said you're contributing to the problem, raise my hand, yes. Uh, if you've ever used the expression, I'm going to church. For most of my life, I still do this, even though I know I'm not supposed to be doing this. You can't, according to the Bible, really go to church. 
you are the church. This isn't the church. This is the church right here, and this is the church right here, and this is the church. You don't go to church, you are the church, and you be the church. So it's a problem if we look just as our church experience and our church membership as consuming spiritual commodities. You cannot, what this lesson is teaching us is you cannot really have a meaningful relationship with God unless you have a meaningful relationship with the people that God has poured his spirit into. You know the ultimate proof of that in the Bible? It's actually way at the beginning. It's a guy named Adam. Because God, Adam is in the middle of paradise and he's got a great relationship with God. And the one thing in creation that God says is not good is what? It's not Adam himself, it's the fact that Adam is alone. Now, if Adam with no sinful nature living in the middle of paradise cannot pull off spiritual independence as a Lone Ranger Christian, how on earth do you think you or I are going to do that? You can't. We need each other if we want to have real relationship with God. That's the first point. We're kind of on the outside throughout life as foreigners and God desires to bring us in, but he desires to bring us in not only to himself but to one another, which gets us to the next point, what we now are. Did you notice the analogy that the Apostle Paul uses here? I've stared at this for years, and I think every time I look at it, I see a little bit more. It's brilliant. The analogy that he uses, he says, you were foreigners, you were aliens, you were outsiders, but now, what you really are now, is you are fellow citizens in the kingdom, you are family members in the household of God, you are building blocks in the temple of God. You know why he uses three analogies? It's not just to get the point there. He's, he's making a progressively intense point. See, because each of these analogies is closer. Closer as it relates to God and closer as it relates to one another. Because, let's say in the analogy of the kingdom, we're the citizens, God's the king, right? You can live in the kingdom without ever having necessarily a really close relationship with the king. But if you're a child in the household, you're in proximity much closer to the mom or dad. And for that matter, if you're a building block in the temple, how far apart are you? It's not just that God, you live in his presence anymore. In the temple, he actually lives inside of you. See, it's more intense. It's closer. Same thing with our relationship to one another. If you are two citizens in the kingdom, it's possible to live miles apart from one another. But if you are a brother and sister in the household, you live a matter of feet from one another. And if you are two building blocks in the temple, how far apart are you from one another? There's no distance. It's progressively, in proximity, more intense. Do you understand what Paul's trying to teach you here? If you really want to have a close relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ, it comes by getting closer and closer and more spiritually, deeply invested into the lives of the people that God has placed his spirit inside of. If you want the true, genuine experience of Jesus Christ, you have to get deeper into the lives of one another. Now, I want to pause on that third analogy for just a second because it's the one that Paul spends the most time on, the building blocks in the temple. Look at what he says here again in these verses. It says, "Built you building blocks are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become, for the purpose of, 
becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Again, notice what he says here. He says, we're the building blocks and we're built on what? The apostles and the prophets. Now, every commentator will tell you this is the same basic thing and many of you could probably figure it out too. What's the apostles and the prophets? It's the, the, the men and, and people and it's the writings of the people that God inspired to write down his scripture. So the apostles, writers of the New Testament, prophets, writers of the Old Testament, you put them together, it's the word of God. And that is the foundation of the church and the foundation of your life. What's a foundation? A foundation is a stabilizing factor that never moves. It never changes, it never shifts. Nobody in this room knows less about construction than I do. And yet, I know enough. Here's the one thing that I actually do, actually do know. When Adrian and I bought a house, when we came to Milwaukee, we came over for one day and we got to look around at houses and we saw like eight houses. There was one that was getting flipped, a rehabbed house. We saw it at the beginning of the process and we went down, I uh, looked through the house and it's, you know, it doesn't look like much before it's, as it's getting flipped. So you're seeing like the bare bones. We went down into the basement and there's a giant crack going from the ceiling uh, down one of the basement walls into the floor. And I know enough about houses to say, ah, uh, we maybe shouldn't live here. You know, like that's not right. I know that's not right. And they assured me at the time and we had several inspectors go through and they said, well, they're putting up different steel uh, like pillars to support it so that the foundation doesn't shift. Apparently, where we live in Glendale, uh, years ago, back in like the 40s and 50s, there was like a landfill out there and that means that, that the ground underneath is constantly shifting. So you have to do extra things to stabilize the foundation of your house. Why? Because a house that doesn't have a firm foundation is going to crumble. What does this mean? This means God's word coming from a timeless God can never change, it can never be added to or subtracted from and to the degree that you try to change it, your whole, your life becomes a house of cards that falls apart. Uh, the foundation of your life is an unchanging, timeless word of God. And what is the chief cornerstone of that word? It is none other, it's not a what, it's a who. Jesus Christ. Well, what's the cornerstone? Cornerstone is the most important stone in the foundation. It's the one that gets everything else in line and makes sense of everything else. Uh, Jesus Christ in scripture is the alpha and the omega. He's the thread of God's grace that ties the whole thing together. These are the scriptures, you diligently study these scriptures, they testify about me. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. All of scripture is all about him. And if you are a building block built on God's word, that means all of your life has to be built on him. This, by the way, is part of the reason why you tend to feel a little disconnected from some Christians sometimes. As we're starting to talk about uh, being built into one another's lives and being built together, and you say, I don't feel all that built together with some of these Christians. What's the problem? It's entirely possible where our country's at right now because we've had this like cultural assumption of Christianity for so long that somebody can self-identify as a Christian, but they don't really have Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of their life. And that seems out of place and it doesn't fit. But you know what happens? When you do find somebody else where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of their life, you kind of get this, oh, you too thing, huh? And you fit together, according to the Bible, closer than biological brothers and sisters. You fit together perfectly and you rise up to become something that you gra greater than you are independently. In fact, 
Uh, this analogy of the building block is, I mean, if you, if you meditate on this for a while, you can come up with some really fascinating things that the Spirit has packed into this analogy. For instance, a building block, how much purpose does it serve on its own? Now, the only reason a building block is ever hewn out of the, the quarry, ever cut out of stone, is for the purpose of creating a building. Why do we have buildings? Because human beings cannot survive the nastiness of the elements of this world. It's too scary, it's too big, it's too wild, it's too dangerous. You can't, you can't live out there in the snow and the rain and the wind and the cold and the sun and all the conditions, you cannot survive. And in fact, if you're wandering through the wilderness and you come across one building block and you try to lay down by that building block and you say, this will protect me, it will not help you at all. Why? Because a building block estranged from all the other building blocks can't do squat. A building block estranged from all the other building blocks serves absolutely no purpose. And what that tells us and what that teaches us is a single Lone Ranger Christian trying to do their faith on their own. Maybe they're a Christian, I don't know, but they're accomplishing absolutely nothing in God's kingdom. God can't dwell there. He can only dwell when the building blocks are built together and he can dwell amongst them. Now, I'll tell you what, this is massively convicting for a lot of people, including myself sometimes, to be honest with you. Because if you went across the, the landscape of culture and asked people, are, do you go to church? Are you a member? What does it mean to be a member at a church? What does it mean to be a member at St. Marcus? You say, yeah, I'm a member at St. Marcus. I, I attend worship there maybe three times a month. Does that square with the analogy of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here of having your lives completely built together? You know what being built together looks like? Let me give you a couple examples. Um, there's a spot in Hebrews 13, 17 where the writer says, obey your leaders and submit to their spiritual authority as ones who must give an account for you. I have no idea how a Lone Ranger Christian who's not regular and active in a church submits to that portion of scripture. I don't think you can do it. God absolutely designs for you to be an active member in a Christian local church. Uh, for that matter, do you have somebody in your life that you're so built and so close to that you could, they know the worst thing that you ever did? You have such a transparent, such a vulnerable relationship that you can pour out your heart to them. Uh, and for that matter, if you're struggling with something and want help overcoming something, you know, the interesting thing is I know very few Christians who will tell me that God has audibly called them out on things in their life. And a voice came and said, James, stop doing that. You're ruining your life. But I'll tell you what, God does speak into your life, not only through his word, but he also puts his spirit inside other human beings that when you give them access and like a hunting license on the problems that are roaming around in your life, they can absolutely help you overcome some of those sinful temptations and behaviors and habits. And just as important, do you also have somebody in your life that you can go to when you really are struggling and you feel guilty and you think, oh, I feel terrible. And you can go to them and there is absolutely no fear of judgment. They're not gonna be shocked and appalled and walk out of the room in disgust but you know what they're gonna say? Guess what, I love you. More importantly, God loves you and God has completely forgiven you. And so I want you to live new and live free and be at peace. Do you have somebody like that in your life right now? Because you need somebody like that. 
Are you built into somebody like that? Do you have transparency and vulnerability in your life with somebody like that? Do you feel that presence of God in your life like that? This brings me to my last point. I say that in part because I know a lot of you don't feel that. Um, And I want you to feel that. And it's real interesting. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, if you move just ahead another chapter or two, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now you notice he doesn't say make every effort to generate unity or create unity. He says in Jesus Christ, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you already have unity. You are already closer to these people than you are to your biological brothers and sisters. But he says, you know what? You do have to make effort to experience that closeness. You do have to make effort to feel that presence. Uh, And I'll tell you what, I don't think, I honestly don't think it can happen in the course of an hour-long worship service on the weekend. A lot of great things happen in a worship. I'm, I'm a worship leader and a pastor. I'm not against worship services. A lot of great stuff happens here. Our souls need it. But the intimacy that the Apostle Paul is talking about right here, I don't think that can happen in an hour-long worship service. In our context, you know where I think one of the best places for this to happen, where I've seen it and experienced it happen some of the best? I think it's in some of our small groups. And a lot of those are Bible studies, and some of them are are musical groups, and some of them are other kinds of friendship relationships, but in small groups. Uh, Right now, we we currently have about 10 small groups, 10 to 15 small groups organized at St. Marcus. I'll tell you what, we need more. I'm both encouraged by that number and I know we desperately need more. Uh, Within several years, it would be my prayer that over half the people that we have at St. Marcus would have their lives cemented into some form of small group uh, within our church context. We need more men and women to lead. We need more people to open their houses. We need more people to invest in the spiritual lives of one another. And I'll tell you what, if you want the best odds of having a sensational sort of experience of the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in your life, the best place, the most likely place it's going to happen is within the context of one of those groups. Um, you know why I know that? There, there's, it's stuck with me for years. There's a famous story that, that actually, I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. He tells it in a book called The Four Loves. And he tells about three childhood friends. And uh, their, their name's Jack, Ronald, and Charles. C.S. Lewis is Jack. Don't, I won't get into how he got that nickname, but Jack, Ronald, and Charles. And they're best friends. They're like the three amigos, the three musketeers. They go on all these adventures all the time with one another. Uh, co-best friends. But one day tragedy strikes and Charles dies. And then it's just Jack and Ronald. And Jack is mourning the loss of one of his best friends. And the only way he's able to console himself at that time is he thinks, well, I've lost Charles, but maybe that means that now I get more of Ronald. Because, you know, I I used to have to share Ronald with Charles, but now I get Ronald all to myself as a best friend. And then he found out that his intuition was completely wrong. Because there was a side of Ronald that only Charles could really draw out. And every one of you in close friendships and every one of you in a family know exactly what I'm talking about. There's aspects of your character, there's aspects of your personality that only other people, certain people, can provoke. A side of your sense of humor, a side of your warmth and compassion, a side of your intensity and anger and and all that kind of stuff. In a sense, it takes a village, it takes a community, it takes a friendship to know one person. Now, what C.S. Lewis said is if that is true, that it takes a community to know a person, if that's true, when it comes to complex but finite human beings, 
How much more don't you think that's true when it comes to the complexity of an infinite Lord? It takes a group of people that he has placed his spirit into to really know who that God is. We need one another in order to truly know God. And let me remind you as I close here why we want to know him. Um, the temple. We're building blocks in the temple. I mentioned that earlier. Jesus, interestingly enough, in the Gospels refers to himself as the temple. Remember, he says, I'm going to, build, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to, to rebuild it. And he's talking about his body, right? You know what happens when he's on the cross? Something really incredible happens that the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to record happens at the physical Jew, uh, Jewish temple in Jerusalem. We're told that at the moment that Jesus is dying on the cross, crying out in pain, pain for the sins of the entire world, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. What a weird detail. Uh, do you know why the Holy Spirit includes that there? The temple, see, it had this curtain that separated the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, which was like the presence of God, from all of God's people. So when Jesus dies on the cross and he takes away all of your sins and all of your mistakes and your iniquities that have separated you from God, he takes away everything you've ever regretted, the worst things that you've ever done, and he pays for them all and separates them as far as the east is from the west. He rips open the veil to that temple that separates God's people from God. It's not by anything you do. You don't rip it open from bottom to top. He came down in God's grace and ripped it open from top to bottom so that you can celebrate the presence of being in God's house forever. Nothing can hold you back from that. You know how he does it? Jesus Christ came and he was the ultimate insider. He lived in, in the house of the Lord forever past, eternity past, loving and serving the Father. But he came down to earth and, and he chose to love us, not because we were so hip and trendy, not because we were so highly moral, not because uh, he just wanted some more people to like him and he was needy in any way. He loved us just because he loved us. He loved us because of grace. And you know how he loved us? He was the ultimate insider and yet he, got, he chose to switch places with us by being treated like an outsider. He got rejected by his own brothers and sisters and his own uh, Jewish family. He got cast outside of the gates of Jerusalem to be crucified. And at the cross, he even gets ripped from the arms of his eternal Father in heaven because he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gets treated like the ultimate inside, outsider. It's ultimate loneliness. It's cosmic unheimlichkeit. Why? So that you and me, who because of our rebellion, we deserve to get treated like outsiders. But because he's paid for all of that, because he became the outsider, we get forever treated as insiders. We will have the warmth and the embrace of God's presence in God's house for all eternity. St. Marcus, here's what I'm asking you to do today. You get to hear from us pastors uh, a lot. And you get, you get to know us just because you just get to speak a ton, which is, which is great. But what I need you to do is I need you to get to know one another a little bit better. I need you to take one more step today consciously into the lives of the people who are sitting around you. You know when you come into the sanctuary, these people, some of them, many of them, you don't know their names yet. Uh, when you come into the sanctuary, it's a fascinating, you should watch yourself sometimes when you come into the sanctuary. It's this fascinating little social experiment because usually the way it goes is somebody comes in and they sit down like in the corner of the sanctuary and then the next person who comes in sits down in like the opposite corner of the sanctuary. The third person who comes in sits, says, man, there's only two corners left. They go and sit in one of the other corners and each person subsequently in sits equidistant from every other person and then half of the worshipers come in five minutes after we started and they cram into the last three pews uh, nearest the exits in the back. 
Uh, I do it too, trust me, I get it. You need to, it doesn't happen naturally. You need to consciously make an effort to invest in the spiritual lives of one another. And the Holy Spirit promises you that you will get a little bit more of Jesus Christ when you do so. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, you have made us the church. There's nothing that we've done to create that and there's nothing that we can do to mess that up. You paid with your blood for all of our sins and you opened the veil from top to bottom and you've held open the door and welcomed us in to the Father's house in paradise for all eternity. Nothing can change that. Help us to live out of joy in that regard. These are going to be our brothers and sisters for all eternity, so help us to get to know them a little bit better here today. Help us to take a step in that direction and uh, as we get to know them, we trust that by your spirit, we'll get an additional measure of an experience of you as well. May this be to your glory. In your name we pray, amen.